Well, it's Resurrection Sunday. Thanks, for be- thanks again for being here at Grace. We're excited. I don't know about you. I've been enjoying the service so far. How about you? It's amazing, man. That's cool stuff. I think our piano's going to be all right, though, right? Okay, all right. Yeah, good, good. Hey, we're, we're really glad that you're here. We're, we're one church that meets in three locations. Uh, we have Paulding, Ohio, and also our Grace Point campus campus in the Northwood area of Toledo, and we also have a, a venue in Bloomville that's live streaming right now, so hey to Bloomville. We also have people in Overflow, hey, sorry, and uh, we're, we're, but we're glad that you're here, and we've got people in their pajamas watching online, so hey, we're, we're glad you're with us too. There is an 1130 service, you need to come here and check it out, but we are excited about what's happening at Grace. We cannot get another chair in this place, so... Thanks for being with us. I, I don't know if anybody have seen the movie that's out now, Case for Christ. Anybody? Uh, some of you have. A great movie. I recommend it. Uh, there was actually a book that Lee Strobel wrote, and it's really about his life leading up to writing that book that he wrote a few years ago. And it's about his life. Lee Strobel was an investigative reporter for the Chicago Tribune, and he was there actually an award-winning legal editor of that paper. And it talks about his life. He, he's an atheist. He was, and his wife was an agnostic. They were living in the Chicago area, and after the birth of their first child, his wife became a Christian, which was terrible news for Lee. As a matter of fact, the first thing he thought about when, when she talked to him about that was that he wanted to divorce her. But he came up with another plan. He decided that he would use his investigative journalist skills in order to disprove Christianity. And that's exactly what he did. And so he went through all the evidence. And it's a great movie to see because they work through a lot of the evidences that he's talking about for the resurrection and, and trying to disprove those things. But as he does that, he comes to the conclusion, much to his horror, that the evidence for the resurrection points to that, the fact that it's true. And that led him to eventually become a believer. So, great movie. I saw, I, Pam and I watched it Thursday in Sandusky, and I, I saw several people from our church, and it was a great movie to go check out. But here's the deal. The resurrection is the cornerstone of the Christian faith. The resurrection is everything. The resurrection, if it's true, it's a paradigm-shifting reality. It's a paradigm-shattering reality. And it may shatter some of your paradigms. For example, if you're here and maybe you have the, the, the feeling that, hey, life is all there is. The resurrection of Christ shatters that paradigm. If you're thinking, well... You can't really know God personally, so there, there's, you don't have to worry about it. The resurrection of Jesus shatters that paradigm. If you're, if you're thinking that every religion is basically the same, the resurrection of Jesus blows that away. If you're thinking, well, uh, the Bible, I, I just don't really get it. I think it's outdated in some areas. If Jesus rose from the dead physically and bodily, what you feel about the Bible is irrelevant. The resurrection changes everything. 
If he did rise from the dead, if it's true, then that is the most important truth you will ever hear. It's the most important truth for you, for me, for everyone in the world. And if the resurrection did not happen, then the whole Christian faith, it's worthless. If the historical, bodily, physical resurrection of Jesus didn't happen, then Christianity is worthless. The Bible even tells us that, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15. But I'm telling you, the resurrection did happen, and it has the power to change your mind and your heart and your soul. There are several accounts, historical accounts, first century accounts of the resurrection, and we're going to look at one of them today in Luke 24, beginning in verse 36. And I, I want to read that to you. And as I do that, Jesus appeared to many individuals. He appeared to groups of people, one group of even 500 people. But this is just one of those appearances of Jesus. And this happens, it's after the resurrection. Jesus has already appeared to some people, some women at the tomb, two guys that are leaving Jerusalem, heading to Emmaus. He appears to them. Actually, those guys come around, head back to Jerusalem, report to the disciples that they've seen Jesus. And it's when they're discussing this that this happens in verse 36. So here, here we go. While they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands, my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. And now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day. And that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. But you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So Jesus shows up to this room of people, and, and basically, Jesus gives the disciples. They're perplexed, they're confused, they're joyful, they're hopeful. They, they can hardly believe it, so they're trying to process all this information as Jesus is standing before them. And the resurrected Jesus gives them three truths that they need to hear, and he gives us today those same three truths. And here they are. He gives to them evidence... For your mind, joy for your heart, and hope for your soul. Let me explain that. First of all, evidence 
for your mind. He shows up, and notice the disciples, they, they're, they're kind of freaking out a little bit. They, they don't know what to think. They can hardly believe it. But what does Jesus do? How does he respond? He says, touch me. Check it out. See my scars. See my hands. See my feet. I'm flesh and blood. And he gives them the evidence that they need to process that he's not a ghost. He's not a spirit. He's standing there, flesh and blood, before them. And, and he helps them process that. I mean, when Jesus was crucified and his body was missing, the disciples, they're, they're fearful, they're depressed, they're perplexed. But then he shows up and they're shocked. What's interesting about this is several times he had told the disciples in his ministry, he said, I'm going to be killed and I'm going to rise on the third day. They just didn't really get it. Notice none of the disciples are like, there you are. We were wondering when you, we knew this was the day, finally we get, no, they're all like, whoa, what's going on? They're frightened, they're scared, they're shocked. They're confused, they're trying to figure it out. And he gives them that evidence, touch me and see. But I want to tell you, we have hard evidence today. And that's the deal. If you're sitting here today and you don't believe in the bodily, physical resurrection of Jesus you still have to account for the evidence. You still have to process that. You still have to, to work through that on, on all the historical evidence for the resurrection. You need to look at the story and see, does it sound made up? Because really, that's your only two options. Either, the disciple, either it happened the way they said it happened, and they just recorded it in these first century eyewitness accounts, or they made it up. People used to say, well, the Bible, we can't really tell what it says in the first century because it's changed over these thousands of years. Nobody says that. No serious historian says that anymore because we've found enough fragments of Scripture dated within a hundred years of the crucifixion of Jesus that, that nobody's thinking this this changed over hundreds of years. And that's just fragments. Those are just copies of the originals. So we know the originals date to the first century. We know the originals date to 20 years within the crucifixion. Nobody's doubting that anymore. So this movie, The Case for Christ, it went through some of the evidences for the gospel. Like it just talked about some stuff. Okay, if this is made up, this doesn't sound like a made up story. For example... Uh, this guy, Lee Strobel, as he's investigating this, he notices that all four Gospels tell you that women were the first witnesses. Women were there at the tomb. They were the first witnesses of the resurrection on that first Easter Sunday morning. The thing about it is that doesn't make a lot of sense if you're trying to make it up. Because in all three dominant cultures of the first century, Roman culture, Greek culture, and Jewish culture, they were all sexist. And none of them believed that women were reliable, viable witnesses in court of law. And so if you're going to make up a story to convince people that Jesus is the Son of God, why would you use women as original witnesses? Because everybody that hears that story can just write that off in that culture. We don't do that today. It wouldn't make any sense. You wouldn't make it up that way. The other option is that it, they said it because that's the way it happened. He he worked through, Lee Strobel did, about the appearances, how Jesus Christ appeared to people. And, 
and how problematic that was because these appearances, can, they date back within a few years of Jesus. So here you had groups of people saying it was true, writing public letters, and, the, and Christianity is spreading while they're saying all this and naming people that had seen the resurrected Christ while they were still living. And then he, he, know, he knew groups of people had seen the risen Christ. So he went and talked to a, a, a psychologist who was not a believer to, to ask, is this possible? Can you have group hallucinations? And the person's like, no, I'm a skeptic just like you are, but that's impossible. I mean, hallucination is kind of an individual thing. It's weird because a lot of times in my life, over my years of ministry, I've talked to skeptics, love talking to skeptics. And then sometimes they'll say, well, you know, so I say, well, how do you account for this evidence? And they'll say, well, I, I think the, the, the disciples just lied about it. And, of course, that's just one issue. There's a lot more evidences than that. But just that one issue, the disciples lied. It really makes no sense. These are the disciples that brought us through Jesus the greatest moral standard in the world in all of human history, and we're saying they lied to start it. And by the way, I get people lie, but there's usually a motive. What would the motive be? Money? No, they were all poor. Fame? Well, they, when they were alive, they, they died typically in obscurity. Power? They were all killed. Ten of the eleven remaining disciples after Judas committed suicide at the resurrection, ten of them were martyred for their faith. They were killed for their faith. You know, people can die for a lie, but nobody willingly dies for what they know is a lie. And these people all lost their lives to stand for the truth of who Jesus was in the resurrection. He, he started thinking like, like people have processed, well, maybe Jesus didn't really die. You know, maybe, maybe somehow he survived the crucifixion and somehow he revived and, and got out of there. And then he went and talked to a medical doctor and the medical doctor's like, no. No, your crucifixion was brutal. Couldn't have survived it. And by the way, at the end, to make sure he was dead, the Roman soldiers, who were professional killers, they did this a lot, remember, shoved the spear up in his side. And when he did that, punctured pericardium. And the gospel writers say water and blood flowed out. They didn't understand that. But today, modern science is telling us, yeah, that's what happens when people die a death like this. That's exactly what would happen. And so we have the first century witnesses recording something that they didn't even understand that now modern science can explain to us. And so he goes and sees the doctor and, and this physician's like, no, there's no doubt. He's no way he could have survived crucifixion. The, the problem with it is a movie like the case for Christ, it cannot, there's so much evidence for the resurrection, cannot present all the evidence. As a matter of fact, you can just be a historian and you have to wrestle with the resurrection because in AD 30, about the time that Jesus died, there was a major shift in the entire world. For example, here at the crossroads of the world in the Middle East, for, we see tens of thousands of Jewish people who had for over a thousand years saw the nature of God as just being God as, as one God and, and nothing else. They changed their view to the nature of God being one God and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. After a thousand years, they change in one year. How do you account for that? The resurrection. Or look at it this way. Just as a historian, 
For over a thousand years, the Jewish people have been worshiping God on Saturday. And then one year, there's this explosion, and all of a sudden, tens of thousands of these Jewish people are now worshiping God on what day? Sunday. Why? Because this is the day of the resurrection. Sunday was the day that he came back from the dead. And we see changed lives, and we see the, the conversion of, of people, skeptics like Paul and, and James. All this evidence. The spread of Christianity like an explosion. When it was illegal to be a Christian, when in, in the Roman world, which was dominating that part of the world, they would kill you for being a Christian. Is what it developed into. They fed Christians to the lions. But yet Christianity is expanding all over the world. And, and we still see that kind of persecution in some parts of the world today. Last Sunday, Egypt, what happened? You know, Palm Sunday, there was a terrorist attack on the Coptic Christian churches in Egypt. If the resurrection didn't cause all those things in history, you have to figure out what did. What was the cause? You have to wrestle with it. Intellectual integrity demands it. You've got to come up with an answer for that, some explanation of the evidence. So the first thing that Jesus gave his disciples and he gives us is hard evidence for our mind, for our head. And the second thing he offers to them and offers to us today is joy for your heart. Joy for your heart. Here's the weird thing. To me, about this story, I don't know if you caught it, but we're reading through. He meets his disciples, and, and then right in the middle of all that, he says, you got anything to eat? And he snacks around. Just kind of an odd thing, right? Think about it. Jesus has been through crucifixion three days ago. Now he's risen from the dead. And here's the thing I get. They give him a piece of broiled fish. I got to tell you, I'd be pretty disappointed with that myself. You know, come on. Can't we come up with something better? This guy's been through a lot. A piece of, not even a whole broiled fish, just a piece of broiled fish. But the question is, why did he do that? Why did Jesus ask for food? And some people would say, well, he was proving to them that he had a real body. And so he was there in flesh and blood and bone. And, and so that was just more of that evidence. But he had already covered that. They had already felt him, touched him. They knew he was there. They knew he was there bodily. They knew that he wasn't a ghost. They... He was just right there, and then they had, he had already offered, hey, touch my hands, check me out, feel me, I'm real. And I think maybe it's because in the first century, eating meant something a little bit more than, than what it means to us today. In the first century, eating with somebody signified relationship. It represented relationship. And some cultures in the world today are still that way. Eating represented relationship. What's happening is Jesus is coming back and he's eating with the disciples. And he did this several times in his appearances. He ate with them. And he's doing that to reaffirm that we still have this connection. We're still friends. We're, we're still connected. We're, we're still in relationship. Have you ever thought about how it might have been to be one of the disciples? One of the original 12? Jesus was raised in obscurity... And when he was 30, he entered his public ministry, and that's when he uh, 
got a following, picked his disciples, and for three years they traveled Israel and he taught people. It was only three years. Could you be, imagine being one of the 12? You get to be with the Son of God. Maybe you don't realize it at the beginning, but more and more you're, you're coming to understand this guy's the smartest guy that's ever lived. He's the most holy, right, pure person that's ever lived. And so, but there's 12 of you. I, I know we go out to eat as a staff, and sometimes there'll be about the same number, 12 or 50, our staff's getting bigger, and you know, sometimes just us guys will go out and grab something to eat. And it's kind of hard to find a table. You know, we have to be selective in where we go so we can all sit together. But then when you're sitting together, you don't really get to sit with everybody. Could you imagine how it was with the disciples? They're all jockeying for position. Like, you know, Jesus sits down to eat. Hey, we're all there. You know, I'm next to Jesus. I don't want to miss anything he says. Or we're walking to the next town. Well, hey, I, I want to get up here and I want to walk with Jesus. I want to hear what he's saying. I don't be bringing up the rear. What, what did he say? What, what, what happened there? And then the crowds were coming to see Jesus. But there wasn't enough of the incarnate Jesus to go around. Everybody wanted to be with Jesus, but everybody couldn't be with him because he was just one person in his flesh. And did you catch? Did you catch where Jesus says toward the end of the passage that I read where he says, hey, I'm, remember the promise of the Father, stay here, stay in the city, stay in Jerusalem. And what, he, what he's talking about, that promise, is the promise of the Holy Spirit. Here's what's happening. We know from Scripture, God loves us. It's weird because God knows us. He knows everything about us. And, and we don't want everybody to know everything about us. I mean, there's some things about us that's embarrassing, shameful, you know, stuff we don't like. But God knows all that. And he, want, he loves us and wants relationship offers relationship to all people. But the thing about it is you have a relationship with God. While Jesus was in the flesh, well, man, I want to be with him too. Everybody does, but there's not enough of Jesus to go around. And then Jesus is teaching his followers, hey, you know what? After I die, after I leave the ascension, then I'm going to send somebody, the helper. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And with the coming of the Holy Spirit, for the first time in history, we can all be with God 24-7. We don't have to stand in line. We don't have to jockey for position. All we have to do is be a believer, and the Holy Spirit will actually come into our, our life, and we can be with God forever. And that's God's idea, because God wants this personal relationship with us. God brings joy to our, through the Spirit, kind of mystical, we can have this joy of knowing that we're with God all the time. That he's always with us. All we have to do is tune into that fact. The resurrected Jesus brought joy for our hearts. And then the last thing is the resurrected Jesus brought hope for our souls. You see, the problem with having a relationship, a close relationship with somebody is that the closer we get to people the more they see our flaws the more they see things that maybe we don't want them to see because all of us carry around a stain on our soul we all have guilt and shame 
and regrets. We've all done things we wish we wouldn't have done. We've all hurt people, whether we meant to or not. We, we've, all, we've all been selfish when we shouldn't have been. Even our motives for doing good things sometimes aren't the greatest on the inside. Only we know that. And so we carry this around and we know that holy, pure, righteous God of the universe wants a relationship with us. It's a little problematic because we start realizing how far short of God's character and God's commands that we fall. And the other thing is, because of the very nature of God, not only is he good, powerful, but being a just God, boy, if there's justice, ah, that means that wrongs have to be punished. That means sin has to be punished, and, and we're all sinful. And so that's the problem. But Jesus Christ brought hope for our soul. Did you notice that, that part... In, that I read, it said, and he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He did this in, in other appearances as well. This is where he's, he's getting to see. They're not seeing, even though he told them he'd be resurrected. You know, they, they knew dead people stay dead. They, they knew that probably better than we know it because they probably had a lot more death around them in the first century than we did. But they were also expecting, so they weren't expecting that. And actually, they weren't expecting Messiah to die. They're expecting a strong Messiah. They're expecting a leader to come, rally the Jewish people, go to war with Rome, overthrow the government, and be Israel again. But Jesus explains the scriptures to them. He goes through the law of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, to help them to see it's, it's not a strong Messiah that the world needs. The only way this makes sense throughout the whole Bible is a weak Messiah who comes as a servant and suffers and dies. Because to the Jewish mind, somebody dies by crucifixion, they're cursed by God. When they have Jesus, people are saying he's the Messiah and he's crucified. And, and for a lot of people who are on the fence, they're like, okay, game over. He died. God, nobody favored by God is going to end up dying a crucifixion like a criminal. But then when he comes back from the dead, they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. He, he, he's back. Okay, that only can happen with God. He must be the anointed one. He has to be the Messiah. But, but why would he have died? Why would God have allowed that to happen? That makes no sense. And then they start realizing as Jesus teaches them through the Old Testament. Oh, whoa, whoa. Okay, so he's favored by God, yet he dies anyway. Well, he couldn't die for his sin. Oh, oh. Oh, he must have died for somebody else's sins. Oh. He's the fulfillment. This is the whole sacrificial system. For over a thousand years, we've been realizing that we cannot live up to the holiness standards of God. And so we've been taking unblemished sheep, innocent lambs that have done nothing wrong, and we've been slitting their throats and sacrificing them as a reminder to cover for us to acknowledge our sin and cover our sin for a short amount of time. And we have to keep doing this and doing this and doing this just as a reminder of the seriousness of our sin. And now all of a sudden, the perfect lamb has come, Jesus and he was slain. 
for us once and for all. The holy for the unrighteous. The righteous for the sinner. And that's exactly what happened. And they started understanding. And they understood all that because of judgment. They, they realized, say, hey, sin has to be paid for. And we get that too. We don't like to think about it. But we know there, there could be no justice if there's no punishment for wrongs. And God's perfectly just. And so then the big question is, well, who gets judged? It'd be like if we categorized people on a bookshelf. Right? So the top row is like the best people. You know, they're the world leaders who have done the most good. That would be recognized. Anyone respected in the world, the whole world over would probably recognize their names. You know, maybe people like Abraham Lincoln, Winston Churchill, Martin Luther King Jr., Top row, I mean, pretty much every, most people in the world recognize them and say, yeah, they did good. And then let's say, okay, that's the top shelf. So the second shelf, we'll say, are like national leaders. Maybe not known throughout the world, but great people who did good things and have great reputations. Men and women who accomplished a lot. And, and, and so we, like in our country, would look up to. And then on the third shelf would maybe just be hardworking, honest people. You know, just the people who who pay their taxes, people who are they're hardworking, good people, they're trustworthy, the kind of friend that you would have that if you were going on an extended vacation, you would give them the keys to your house to watch over the place. You know, trustworthy people. But then the shelf below that, the fourth shelf, these are people that little, live a little closer to the edge, right? People like Jay. People like, no, just kidding. No, people that, you know, live a little closer to the edge, and, uh, you know, they're, they're, uh, they're great to have at parties, but you would never give them the keys to your house if you were heading off for a, a long vacation, right? You know, those kind of people. And then say the shelf before, below that one are people who, you know, they're on the other side of the edge. They actually, they lie, steal, cheat to make a living. And then the one below that, the shelf below that are people, truly evil people who, who enjoy hurting people, people like dentists, you know, those kinds of people. <laughs> they, they like hurting people. And so the question is, if we're categorizing people this way, where do you draw the line of judgment? How far down do you go and say, yep, these people need judged? And typically, if you're like most people, what you do is you figure out what shelf you're on, and then you draw the line right there, right under you. <laughs> All you other people, you're messed up. But we're going to make it. That's just what we do, human nature. And i got to tell you, a line of judgment will be drawn. But it will be drawn by God. And he will not draw the line horizontally. He will draw the line vertically. And on one side are people that God loves. And loves so much that God has allowed his son to come and die for. And people that he offers relationship to. And they accept. And on the other side of that line of judgment are people whom God loves. And people for whom Jesus came and gave his, was tortured to death in order to pay for their sins. And, and that he offers relationship to and they say, thanks, but no thanks. You see... 
This is how Christians, true Christians, can be confident in their salvation, but yet humble in spirit. Sometimes I'll talk to, to skeptics, like I mentioned before, and sometimes we'll be in a, a talk, and, and again, I enjoy talking to skeptics, and, and, and somewhere in there it'll come out, you know, as I'm explaining what God says in the Bible, I'll say, so you think you're a Christian? Well, yeah, I'm a Christian. Well, so you think you're going to go to heaven? I'll say, well, yeah, I, I know I'm going to go to heaven. Oh, I can't believe that. How egotistical are you that you think you know that you're good enough to go to heaven, that you're accepted by God? It's a great misunderstanding of Christianity. Because what am I saying? I'm saying, yeah, I know that, but it's not because of anything good I've done. Jesus did it all. I don't deserve it. I freely admit, I do not deserve to go to heaven. It's a gift. It's grace from God. Jesus is my only hope. He's the only way. It's the only way I could become a believer. That's what Easter is all about. Jesus Christ came to die for our sins. We're sinners because God gave us this freedom that we could love God back or not, and we've all misused it to do our own thing and to rebel against him by doing things that he says is wrong. But he loves us anyway. And so he made a way for the one person who lived in history, Jesus Christ, to leave heaven, clothe himself in flesh, live a perfect life, the only one who had no sin, but yet he voluntarily died on the cross in payment for our sins. The only one qualified to do that. And God offers us relationship because he loves us, every one of us. And all we have to do is respond in faith with belief. And I don't want to close our service and actually we've got a little bit more service to go. We're going to have another song but I want to close out this part of our service without giving you an opportunity to believe the evidence and place your trust in Jesus. What I'd like right now is if we just all bow our heads. And what I want to do is the moment you put your trust in Jesus and Jesus alone for your salvation, not church, not, not even our church, you know, not not because you're a good person, not because you've been through some rich religious ritual, not even baptism, which we think is great. It's only Jesus. You, we cannot earn our salvation. None of us can. If you're ready to do that, I'll help you with that. You can express that to God. If you're trusting in Jesus this morning, here's how you can express it in prayer to God. And you don't even have to say it out loud because God knows your every thought. So if you're trusting in him, for the first time, then I want you to express this to God. I'm going to lead you in a prayer, and you can silently put this in your own words, make it your prayer to God. And I promise he will hear you. Something like this. Father God, in heaven, I understand that I'm a sinner. I've done things wrong like everyone else. And God, uh, those things deserve punishment because you're righteous and just. But I also understand that you love me more than I ever dared to imagine. 
and you know me completely and you still love me. You like me. And right now I'm placing my trust in Jesus, my faith in Jesus, meaning I believe that Jesus truly is the Son of God, your Son. And I trust in the fact that his death on the cross paid for all of my sins, past, present, future. And God, I thank you for that amazing gift. And I also recognize, God, the joy of being able to ask you to come into my life through your Holy Spirit and help me to live in a way that pleases you. Just help me to live the best way I can. Thanks for loving me like that in Christ's name. With our heads bowed, I just want to ask if you've made that decision. We want to pray for you. We don't want to embarrass you. We want to protect your privacy. Some people are more private than others. But we would also like to know so we can pray for you, even without knowing your name. So if you're on the left side of the auditorium, all the way up there toward the left wall in that section, if you prayed that prayer uh, this morning, actually, Uh, We talked about this last week, or maybe you did it last week. Just within the last week, you have prayed this prayer, as far as you know, for the first time when you knew you were trusting only in Jesus. If you just raise your hand up, let me see you, and then just put it down. That's all I'm asking you to do. Far left section. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Just put it up and put it right back down. Just let me spot you up and down. Okay, I see you back there. The, The next section. Here next to the center aisle on the left, I see you. Thank you. Anyone else will say, hey, Kevin, I I prayed that prayer. And I'm trusting in Jesus today. Just put your hand up. I see you back there. Thank you. Right back down. Just saying, pray for me. Thanks. Just put it up and right back down. And now on the right side next to the aisle here, you just raise your hand to say, hey, Kevin, I just want you to know I prayed that prayer, and uh, I'm trusting in Jesus. Pray for me. Uh, Just put it up. I see you back there. Thanks. Back there in the back section. See you. In the back row. See you. Thank you. Anyone else? Anyone? Okay. And the right-hand section. Hey, Kevin, just want you to know, prayed that prayer. I'm trusting in Jesus. Just put it up and right back down. That's all I'm going to ask you to do. Just put it up, put it down so we can pray for you. I see you right there. Thank you. Thanks. Father, we thank you for these who have indicated that they have come to trust you. And there may even be some who didn't want to raise their hand but, but prayed that prayer. And God, we thank you for them and pray that you'd help them to grow in you and Lord, if they don't have a church home, that they would come back to grace and as we all grow closer to you together. Lord, thanks for loving us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand together. You know, for 2,000 years, pastors have been standing in front of congregations and saying, he is risen, and the congregations have been saying back, he is risen indeed. Let's try that this morning. He is risen. Hey, that's good stuff. Happy Easter. Thanks for being here. Jay, take it away.